from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Paul Adams, a Dublin-based designer, researcher, and product manager who's worked for Google and Facebook and now runs product at Intercom, a fast-growing customer communications startup. Paul and his Intercom colleagues use a technique called job stories that's inspired by the jobs-to-be-done approach, first developed by Clayton Christensen. I've been inspired by their approach to using job stories to solve tough product design issues. And I love Paul's clarity in understanding how to turn customer insights into specific product design decisions. We don't obviously necessarily build what they ask for, but we listen to what they're at, they ask for and then go and ask them why they want that thing. The way that I describe this to people is that our customers are experts in their problem, uh, but they're not experts in the solution, uh, the best solution. But they'll always describe things in terms of the solution they want. And so we need to dig back in and ask them, you know, what's the actual problem you've got here? Listen in and learn how Paul and his colleagues navigate the turbulent seas of customer feedback and use their core values and product vision to steer their fast-growing startup towards success. Welcome, Paul, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. Hey, very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to get to interview you today and share your wonderful background and insights and what you're doing now. So let's get started with a whirlwind tour of your background for people who aren't familiar with you. Tell us, how did you get started in design and tech? And then how did you decide what to pursue along the way that led you to where you are today? Yeah, had a very varied journey. I actually originally studied industrial design in university. And so that was actually my first foray into the world of design. And when I graduated from that, I uh, designed car interiors and uh, retail interiors for about a year. Um, But this was around 2000, which kind of ages me, uh, 2001. Uh, The web was taking off. I was really excited about that as a a new medium. So I went back to university to study interactive media and graduated during the dot bomb, which some people may or may not remember, but it was a period where wanting to work on the internet as a designer wasn't easy because there was no jobs. But thankfully, uh, like all great communication technologies, it picked back up shortly after. Uh, in the meantime, I, I actually joined Dyson. I was working there as an industrial designer for a few years, which is actually a great, great experience. It gave me lots of lessons that I still hold today. Um, but I got back into internet design. I worked at an agency in the UK in London for a few years as a researcher and an interaction designer. And I went to Google and I worked in the UX team in Google. Uh, most of the time I was doing research. Some of the time I was doing design. I worked on lots of um, early mobile work at Google, mobile apps like Gmail and YouTube. I worked on a lot of social initiatives like Google Buzz and Google+. Plus. I then left for Facebook, kind of midway through Google+. Plus. I, uh, through a whole bunch of circumstances I'll get into, left, joined Facebook. And I actually worked as a product manager there for the first half of my time. And then worked as a designer for the second half of my time. And then about three years ago, I left Facebook and joined Intercom, which at the time was a tiny fledgling startup, huge potential and very early. And I joined to kind of take over product and design from 
Owen and Daz, two of the co-founders. And since then, I've built out our team. In the early days, I was actually designing myself and some version of product management, I guess, uh, when there's only one person in that in that world. But since then, we've built a big team. I now run four disciplines here, product management, design, product design, research, and content strategy. And we're growing. Yeah, we're, there's like 30 people on my team at the moment. Wow. So you've really taken on different challenges throughout your career, different roles. Yeah. I'm potentially your world's worst nightmare because I know, I know a little about a lot, uh, depending on who you ask. Well, then you're probably in a really good position right now to oversee all those different areas because you have empathy for the people that are in them. And I really would like to dig in a little bit to job stories and jobs to be done and how that's infiltrated your culture and the way in which you do design and product management. So, you know, as we've discussed, I knew about you, but I first was impacted by you when you wrote years ago, what, three years ago now, four years ago, something like that, an an article on job stories using job stories in product development and product design. And that opened my eyes to that tool. So how did you come to write that article? And now how has your use of that tool evolved? It's, it's been fascinating. I had never heard of Jobs to be Done before I joined Intercom. And Owen, who's our CEO and co-founder, and Des, who's our chief strategy officer and co-founder, Owen and Des actually taught me about it. It was a framework that not a lot of people knew about. There's a bunch of people like Bob Muesta and Clay Christensen who talked publicly about it. Uh, and they were pioneering a bunch of things there uh, and popularizing the idea. Uh, but Jobs We Done was really inspirational. You know, we took a lot out of it. We've, we've used it pretty heavily here at Intercom, not just for product, but for marketing and uh, a whole bunch of things. And honestly, the job stories thing happened by accident you know we we were looking at this theory uh, it really is is theory you know there's there's some great examples that um clay uses uh in his writing about jobs we've done but it is theory and we were just applying the the jobs we done framework uh to our work and so as a result we kind of um came up with this formula to describe the the, the way uh we wanted something to work or how we wanted somebody to feel through something we designed. And it didn't have a name. It was just this format. And the basic format was, you know, when something happens. So it's basically when I want to, which is like a motivation. And then so I can, which is expected outcome. So a really simple example is, you know, when a new user signs up, I want to personally uh, introduce myself uh, so I can ensure that they feel like we care or something, something that's really rudimentary. But we had this framework and uh, it didn't have a name. And I wrote this blog post called The Dribbleization of Design, which is actually just this big giant rant about, uh, about the overemphasis on visual design without any kind of more foundational design uh, thinking and a lot of work on Dribble and other, other places. And so the job stories was almost like this like appendum to the end of that post. And that post got a lot of exposure people kind of saw the job series thing at the end and actually kind of jumped on it as this like really pragla- like pragmatic, practical tool to take out of this big rant that, that, I'd, that I'd written. Um, and so it kind of took off by accident. And then uh, our search started by accident and it took off. And 
Yeah, we still use it today. We still use it a lot in our work. We use it very early often. So we'll use it at the high level and at an early stage in a project. We'll write job stories as part of the brief, basically. And then we'll use it as a way to check in along the way. You know, it's very easy to go off script through something as as like intangible as design. And so uh, we'll use it to kind of keep ourselves honest. Got it. So do you ever find that you use it to translate user research into design-ready form? That's one of the main ways I use it. Yeah. So, you know, there's that moment where you've done a bunch of user research and you've done it well, especially early research, like qualitative, you know, needs analysis, customer discovery. And then you've got the research and you say, okay, and we have, you know, 50 features on the board and we could only do three. How do we put all that together? And that's part of where I found job stories so useful. Yeah, uh, we definitely use it that way as well. I think for us, most of the job stories we write are based on research. Sometimes they're not. And, you know, that's obviously like not ideal. Uh, it depends what we've time to do research on. Um, they're usually informed by some, actually, that's not necessarily true. They're usually informed by some, some form of customer communication, you know, just through the nature of Intercom, the product that we design and build, we actually use it for ourselves. And so we just have hundreds of conversations with customers all the time. So actually most of them, honestly, even if we don't go and do research, are informed by some, some customer conversation. So how do you decide who to pay attention to in those conversations and who to sort of filter or contextualize? It really depends. We have this interesting phenomenon where, um, and we're somewhat unique in this way, but then I think if any company uses Intercom at scale, they'll have a similar um, scenario. So for people who are familiar, you, know, you, you can use Intercom. Intercom is a customer communication tool. You can use it for customer support. And so through the customer support lens, we have hundreds of conversations a day, if not more sometimes thousands a day with customers. And we tag all of those conversations. So we might tag them as like feature request or a bug or whatever else. And then our research team aggregates them. So every now and again, they'll go in and they'll like analyze all of the different conversations that we have. And so we're actually not really filtering by, sometimes we are, but we're generally not filtering by customer type. We're actually most of the time filtering by something else. And, and it's probably the job to be done. And so, you know, again, if people aren't familiar with, with jobs to be done, one of the key distinctions between jobs to be done versus other things you might use like personas is that the, the job to be done argument would say that personas are very limiting. Uh, these archetypes of customers are extremely limiting and they uh, make you focus far too narrowly early on and that, the, the, the job, the market for a job is actually way bigger. To make this concrete, by the way, a bit of a tangent, but you know, when I was working at Facebook, one of the most amazing things that I observed about the data set at Facebook was that most people all over the world were doing, were trying to do the same things. So you could have built personas at Facebook, like all the classics, like teenager, uh, you know, active teenager, or like soccer mom, or like all these kind of archetypes, but. If you actually look at what they do in the, in the product, they're all doing the same thing. Like they go to an event and they take loads of photos and then they want to share those photos with people who were and were not there. And then they want to reminisce. And if you're like a 17-year-old kid in Korea or like, you know, soccer mom archetype in the United States, you actually have the exact same workflow. And so that's, that's the kind of lens we apply. Like we don't try and build personas or archetypes. We um, actually look at all the feedback 
and look for jobs in that, in that feedback. That is so exciting. To me as a game designer, and especially applying game design to product design, it solves so many problems. And as I mentioned earlier, you really opened my eyes with your writings. I've used personas for many years, and you probably did too, right? In your own work. Yeah. And I've struggled to communicate to people, you know, why I no longer really use them because everybody loves them. What I think is that they're actually great for marketing segmentation. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you look at the history of personas, they actually came out of advertising and marketing originally. Yeah. And then, you know, user interface people adopted them and I used them for years. But what I found now is that job stories do what in gaming we used to call psychographics versus demographics. You know, they're closer to psychographics. And when I use job stories, and I've extended them to talk about the experience over time. So you have your discovery job story and your onboarding job story and your habit building job story and your mastery job story. And if you write those, if you have somebody write those, all the personas just go out the window. Yeah, very much so. I think that the job is just a superset. Uh, the, the Facebook example I used is a good one because if you're the designer for the photo sharing experience on Facebook and you go about it in one of two ways, you can write the job story, you know, which is something like, you know, when people attend an event and take photos, they want to uh, share them easily with friends so that they can reminisce there or in the future. So I'm, I'm literally making this up. But that, that job story is really powerful. It, it, it makes you think about a whole bunch of things like memories and permanence and things like that. And it's totally agnostic of the person. They could be old or young. They could be in any culture. Whereas if you build a persona, this archetype, you're already narrowing your thinking. You know, like if, if there's a persona, it's a teenager and some, and some other persona, you're already, I don't know, um, taking on board a whole bunch of biases that shouldn't necessarily exist. And yeah, like you said, I was a huge, huge proponent of personas. I used to, I used to, I've made dozens, if not hundreds of personas over the years. And I was a big fan of Cooper. And, you know, I actually still love the book about face. And I actually um, tell our design team here that they should study about face, the book, but they should skip the personas chapter (laughs) because we don't really believe that anymore. But that's, yeah, a very similar story. Do you know if the folks at Facebook use job stories in their work? Did you try and infuse them with that? Or I guess you learned it from Intercom after you left Facebook. Yeah, I don't know if they do. When I worked at Facebook, uh, there wasn't a huge use of personas. They definitely existed here and there. Like for me, the the biggest benefit of personas is in a culture where um, organizationally people aren't directly connected to customers. And that's not part of their belief system. And so what personas do is they open people's eyes to the idea that their assumptions may not actually be true in the real world. For for me, like personas were a really valuable tool over the years for getting people to stop thinking about themselves as the user, as their user. But honestly, like looking back, there's probably a whole bunch of other ways to do that too. Just actually have people show up to research, you know, the primary research themselves, watch videos, talk to people and so on. Right. Well, different tools for different situations. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you use jobs to be done in job stories a lot in the early phases of work. What is your internal process at Intercom for deciding which ideas to pursue and which ones to filter out? That's always a challenge, I know, for everybody, especially with a mature product where you have lots of stakeholders asking for lots of different features. Yeah. 
there's a bunch of things. I guess I can break it down into two two main things. One is we as a company have a really clear mission, really, really clear mission. Um, from before I started Intercom, just talking to the founders, that mission is very clear. It hasn't changed. And being very mission-driven, it's easy to evaluate ideas against that mission. And so people internally here have had many, many, many great ideas that are great ideas for other companies. And I've worked in a bunch of scenarios in my past prior to Intercom where there wasn't a clear mission um, or the mission was competitively driven. And in that environment, it's actually very hard to evaluate one feature over another because they all sound good. And if they all sound good and you don't have a mission to focus them and get rid of some, you'll end up building a lot of them and end up with a very confusing product. So being very being incredibly mission-driven is one big, big, big component. The second is that when we build our roadmap, which is basically you know our plan for what we're going to decide to do and not do, we have five inputs. Um, these basically keep us honest. I'll go through them real quickly. One of the inputs is iterating recent product. Again, it's easy to ship something and then move on to the next shiny thing. So one, one input is iterating recent product. One input is new ideas we have. This is, uh, we're incredibly research-driven here. So this is our, our roadmap track to just think of, invent new cool things we just want to do and put time aside to do them. They're not based on research, they're just based on intuition. We have a track for customers, like customer requests, feature requests, and so on. We don't obviously necessarily build what they ask for, but we listen to what they're at, they ask for and then go and ask them why they want that thing. The way that I describe this to people is that our customers are experts in their problem, uh, but they're not experts in the solution, uh, the best solution. But they'll always describe things in terms of the solution they want. And so we need to dig back in and ask them, you know, what's the actual problem you've got here? And then we have a track for bigger companies using Intercom. As we grow and uh, as a company, we need to... And, and most startups who are successful will face this challenge too, where as you as you get bigger and have more companies um, trying to use your product if you're selling to companies, then these bigger companies have different needs because uh, there's more people in the company using the product and so on. So we have a track for that. And then the last one is quality, which is bugs, speed, latency, all those things. And so basically the, the aggregation of those five really, really helps us prioritize what we do. You know, my guidance to my team is that there should be a balance of all five, but it doesn't have to be equal. Like we can oscillate. Like one team right now, one of our product teams is 100% working on iteration uh, because that's what they need to do. And then they'll move and they'll work on something else for a while. That's kind of how we decide, basically. Do you integrate sprints into your process in terms of focusing? Like you say, somebody's focused on iteration. Are they using a sprint to keep them focused? Do you have other structures that you use? Yeah, we, we kind of work in sprints. But we don't have a formal process. You know, we don't subscribe to any, any one system. I actually like have a whole other strong opinion about those things, but that's another story. Could you tell us the really short version of the story about your really strong opinion about it? <laughs> yeah. I think anyone who subscribes to anything dogmatically, it's kind of like a religion and it's like a cult and it's probably not healthy. Like if people do Scrum and buy a book called How to Do Scrum and follow the book, they're probably doing something bad and terrible. If someone uses Kanban and obsess about that, and that's all they do, it's probably bad. Because every company is different. Every team is different. Every product is different. And 
there's like ways in which these things will work and ways in which they won't. So like here at Intercom, we do things that look a bit like Scrum and generally everything we do looks more or less like Agile. And we have versions of boards that look kind of like Kanban boards, but not quite. And it's because we just keep evolving our own process and like we're not following any religion, dogma, you know, so that's kind of the short version. I get it. I get it. Well, that's, I mean, basically it's continuous learning. Yeah, exactly. And we, and we, we, we actually do have a process that I can explain in a second, but the, the process keeps changing. We're constantly evaluating it every day. Like every day there's conversations about doing like little retrospectives here and there, what could be better and different. You know, we're not obsessive about any one thing. We're totally open to changing it all the time. That sounds really healthy. So on that note, you probably have had exposure to a number of entrepreneurs in the Dublin scene, in San Francisco, in your time at Google and Facebook. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see first-time entrepreneurs make, especially when they're in the early stages of bringing their ideas to life? I guess there's a bunch of things. Uh, I mentioned, I referenced one earlier, which is assuming too much uh, or, or thinking that your users are like you. This is obviously, this is stating the obvious, honestly, but it's still rife. Uh, you know, at some level, like there are times when designing for yourselves is fantastic. There's some times when it's terrible. So that's like one big thing. Another big thing I see is that you, um, especially in design teams, you see people not prototyping early enough. I often say here that we need to design and code. And that doesn't mean designers should code. I actually don't think designers need to code. I think they need to know how code works. They don't necessarily need to be able to write production code. They need to embrace a process whereby you're designing in code. What I mean by that is because of the nature of the internet as a medium, a lot of things are hard to feel and, and know if they'll work when they're like in sketch or framer or like choose your tool of choice. You actually need real code, actual working code to really evaluate if this thing feels right if it's feasible. And so um, I try and get engineers and designers to like sit beside each other, work together, collaborate. As you start writing code, the designer is like giving feedback on how that thing feels. And I don't see that nearly enough. You know, I I see the opposite still, which feels actually kind of a, a lot more like waterfall where designers get to some version of complete and then like give that to an engineering team. And I still see that. And they're the, I guess they're the big things, you know, assuming too much, not getting feedback or not prototyping enough, not designing in code. That reminds me of the William Gibson quote, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. 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 Why does it, why does that remind you of that? Because so many places people don't do that anymore. And yet it's still so pervasive to see you know, what you're talking about. And I see it too. I was actually fired from a gig about two years ago because I wouldn't deliver complete Photoshop ready production documents that didn't need any tuning or testing or tweaking. Right. Yeah. I was having a, what year is this experience? Yeah. But, you know, I think I see the same thing. And it's really interesting because this podcast has a lot of game designers and they say the same thing for what they see first-time game designers making the mistake they don't prototype soon enough. Too much time on design. And the more time you spend on design up front before prototyping in any way, 
the more attached you are to your design. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, yeah, basically sunk costs fallacy, you know. So yeah, I see it all the time. I think there's a, a, a much higher level trend as well of people read the books like Lean Startup or Lean UX or whatever. Again, pick your book choice. People read the books and then in reality revert back to like old habits. You know, it's like old habits die hard. And we, we have it here, you know, like we're not innocent to this. I do it sometimes. Other people do it sometimes. I struggle with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but you can catch yourself. And that's part of where just like an agile and scrum approach where you reflect on, hey, what could we do better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to follow it to the letter. But if you build that into your rituals, then you're basically practicing the spirit of Agile and Scrum. Yeah, yeah. Which I think was your point, which is to practice the spirit in a way that's contextual to what you're doing. Yeah, and it'll be different for everyone, slightly different for everyone. Looking back on your career and the different roles you've played and now what you're doing and where you're heading, what do you feel is your superpower, your sweet spot as a designer and a creator? And another way to ask that is what lights you up the most? Yeah, I, I, you know, over the years, the only role I probably haven't had that's common in you know, technology teams is engineer. And, you know, uh, God help anyone who, who would try and, you know, use code I write. But I've been a product manager and a designer and a researcher and so on. And through that lens, I've learned what I'm good at and bad at. It's really clear to me. The thing I'm probably worst at is all the details of um, product management. Uh, you know, someone once just once said to me that when I was a product manager at Facebook, they said that... Uh, uh, I was great at the product bit and not and bad at the manager bit. So what I'm better at is product strategy. That's kind of my sweet spot. Helping uh, create a vision for something, help people understanding what that means, plotting the future uh, to some degree. You know, one of the things that we do here at the company is create these product strategy boards. And so, you know, we have this mission, but the mission goes out years. Uh, you know, it's going to take us years and years and years to fulfill that mission. And yet at the day-to-day level, we kind of work to, like back to your question earlier, actually, we work on a kind of a six-week cadence, you know, so like uh, we have like a kind of a a six-week sprint, if you want, for one of a better way to describe it. And then we think about six months and, but there's a big big gap, a big gap between six months and like many years. And so uh, these strategy boards fill in that gap and the strategy boards, they're not a project, they're themes for all teams to think about. And so that, that's some of the stuff that I, I work on or try and find as much time to work on um, as possible is, you know, building out these strategic themes that are actionable enough for product teams to take on and fold into the work they do every day. How did you come to six weeks? It's a good question. Trial and error. I, I wrote this post, it's on our blog and on Medium as well, called 666, which is obviously deliberately uh, <laughs> like the devil or something like that. It's memorable, at least, which is six years, six months, six weeks. And the reason for those timeframes is when I worked at Facebook, one of the timelines people used to think about was six months and 20 years. So, you know, Facebook has this mission that's going to take decades to fulfill or materialize. uh, But that's not practical. And so they used to work to six months, you know, like have kind of half year product cycles. So six months and 20 years. So I adapted that for Intercom. And when I was adapting it, 20 years is way too long for us. You know, we're not Facebook. We're still a startup. 20 years, us in 20 years, like who knows? Six years feels closer to something like that we could think about. But when you go 
back from that, to me, like timeframes of like two years, one, one year, 18 months, two years are actually terrible timeframes for product teams. Because if you're trying to predict what's going to, what the world's going to be like in two years, you're almost certainly going to get it wrong, yet you've got to make plans around it. Whereas for six years, you make no plans. It's your mission. And it's agnostic of all technologies and trends and themes and design. Whereas, you know, two years, you're like, oh, yeah, we could start making some plans and actually, you know, build a roadmap there. But in the next two years or two years from now, you will have seen like two new versions of Android and two new versions of iOS and some new web frameworks that didn't exist before and a whole bunch of other things. Like bots is a, bots is a thing and bots wasn't a thing two years ago. So we kind of went back to six months. Six months feels somewhat predictable. And then we went back from there to something that can be really concrete. So, you know, from today, what feels like a good time frame to be extremely concrete? And six weeks felt about right. I honestly don't have a better answer than it felt right. Um, eight weeks, 10 weeks um, is a bit too far in the future to be really prescriptive for us. Three, four weeks doesn't feel far enough. It feels like we'd be chasing ourselves continually. Whereas, you know, in the next six weeks, we could design, build, and launch a whole bunch of things in that time frame, like in, in total. So that's the gist of it. That's really interesting. Thank you for describing that. So what are you seeing on the landscape in design and tech that's new and exciting to you these days? What trends are you following? What are you paying attention to? There's a bunch of things that I think are fascinating at a, at a, at a slightly abstract level. One of the big, big, big things, I think, especially for designers, is around the idea that in the foreseeable future and beyond, many designers won't be designing apps, won't be designing products in the same way as they do today. They'll be designing systems. It's going to be a core, core, core design skill to be extremely good at uh, systematic thinking, Um, being able to internalize a system, design a system, design a system that's ever-changing. If you look at a lot of the amazing fast-growing startups today, for example, they're actually not apps. They're ecosystems. You know, Uber being an amazing example, like Uber is a logistics ecosystem. You know, today it's focused on people and cars, but in the future, it'll be all sorts of other things. The designers of Uber aren't designing the app. The app is a means to an end, and the app has a tiny surface area. And, you know, I'm sure that if they could get that app down to one single button, they would. And what they're actually designing is the system. Like what happens when you hit that that button? And how can they ensure that they're matching drivers and passengers and taking all these signals from like all these different devices and so on and network and all these things? There's loads and loads of other examples. Obviously, a lot of the things designers design today, primarily apps, in the future will mostly be systems. So that's like a big, big, big thing. It's a big thing that I instill in our team here. Like Intercom isn't an app, it's a system. Uh, at Facebook, the design team there don't talk about Facebook as being a monolithic app. It's a system. I think that'll be true for more and more and more people. So that's one big, big thing. More tactically then, that's pretty high level. Things that are exciting to me, these are things we're working on, so something I pay attention to. One is messengers. The idea that these messengers, you know, like Facebook Messenger and so on, are now big enough and broad enough and open enough such that they can become platforms. It can even be considered to be an operating system if you really want to go that far. And lots and lots of things can happen on these messengers. That's pretty interesting. I mentioned bots earlier. The whole world of bots is also fascinating to me. 
think there's actually bot frenzy right now. There's like uh, you know bot overdrive. But I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a real thing. Bots are good for some things, terrible for others. You know, computers are great for some things, and humans are way better at others. I think people are like applying bots blindly to things that computers are terrible at. Like what? Like things that require empathy or things that require uh, an emotional reading of a situation. So like lots of people are excited about bots in customer service. Ah, that's in your, and that's your area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and we're building bots. Like we're, we're. Of course you are. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Uh, Why wouldn't we? It's exciting. But there's just things, some things bots are bad at. And, you know, one of the, one of the big things for me, like it's fascinating to see all this stuff with AI and the game Go and deep, you know, Google's. Oh, that was big. That was a moment. Yeah. So like, I have no idea what what that even means. But for us, you know, Facebook are experimenting with M. And so M is a bot or a computer. And there's people there too. And like Facebook are deliberately blurring the lines. So it's unclear to you as a user, whether you're talking to a bot or a person. And our philosophy, neither, neither is it right or wrong, just different. Our philosophy is the opposite one, which is you should always know when you're talking to a bot. Because if you know you're talking to a bot or a computer, then you know what to expect and what to expect of them. And, you know, don't expect emotional intelligence or, or empathy because they, you can't get it. And so that, that's kind of they're like some of the things. Yeah, that's a big issue in multiplayer game design and has been for years, whether you blur that boundary or make it really, really clear. Yeah. And people fall in different camps. I'm more in your camp. And when I came up through MMO design, you know, we talked about that a lot. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you think about like World of Warcraft, do you know when you're dealing with a bot and human? You do, don't you? Right, right, right. Yeah. That's a conscious decision they made. Yeah. That's fascinating. Why, why as a matter of interest, are you and are, are in the same camp as me? Like what? Why is that? Uh, trust. Yeah. Clarity. And because, you know, I am a systems designer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's my, that's my, uh, the through line of everything I've done through engineering and neuroscience and all. But I remember when I was in grad school studying neuroscience and computer science at the same time, it became very clear that humans are better at some things and computers are better at other. And, you know, the history of AI is once you establish the right micro domain, AI works. Yeah, right. And it's all about how narrow is your micro domain and what is the AI doing in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but humans, as you said, humans are good at basically versions of lightning fast parallel pattern recognition, mm-hmm. like empathy. So I'm a fan of using computers to augment humans, not pretend they are humans. And that's why I'm in your camp. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. The flip side is true too, obviously, which is that there are things that humans have to do that are insanely repetitive that computers are amazing at. and. I think one of the reasons that customer support or customer service as an industry has a lot of roles in it that people have high churn and people leave is because they're just constantly answering the same queries over and over and over and over again. And it's repetitive. And actually, you know, like, for example, if a customer got in touch and said, like, hey, I'm just wondering, like, when's my next bill due? Well, like a computer can answer that in like less than a second, whereas a person has to like, okay, so like, let me just look up your account you know, like parse all the information on screen, like, oh, there's the bill. All right, cool. What date is it today? You know, 
just way, way more inefficient and like really boring for them. So is that leading into where you think it makes sense for Intercom to work on bots and where you think it makes sense to just get the human element even better than it was before? I think so. But I'm not sure. Um, like it's, it's, it's really early days. We're like, you know, dipping our toe in the water, in the water. One thing that's been interesting again, like this is, this is in our, in our new ideas we have track. It's like no customers are asking for bots. You know, this is just something we think is cool and and fascinating and there's value there. And so we should just experiment and like play with some things, build some things, you know, back to like designing and code, like, let's just go build some bots and see how they feel like. And like actually feel being the word, like back to the empathy thing, like what do they feel like? And uh, one of the big lessons we've learned is that it's really hard. It actually is really hard to design good bots. And, and it, it, sounds, it sounds easy. It's like, how hard can it be? But, you know, once you get into any kind of like forking logic where, oh, okay, if bot does this, then do that. Or, okay, even if you're like learning across a data set and using some kind of machine learning, it's still... There's still all these like workflows you have to design. And it's actually really hard to make a really good bot. That's our lesson so far. <laughs> that is a great lesson. So tell us about what's coming up for Intercom looking forward. Is there something on the horizon or something you'd like to tell us about? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're working on we've been pretty quiet externally in the last few weeks and months. We're working on a, a whole bunch of new things, the new product coming that unfortunately I can't talk about yet that we've designed from scratch. You know, one of our design principles here is is to go is actually to go back to first principles, kind of taking a leaf out of Elon Musk's book. So with this product, you know, back to first principles about a problem that's in our in our in our domain. So we have something coming out there soon. We're doing a lot of design work on our messenger and like dabbling our toe in the water into bots and things like that. You know, I very much see messengers as being this incredibly important strategic layer for lots and lots of different types of businesses. Going back to this idea that people are designing systems, you know, it's entirely possible that companies will build on Intercom and build on our messenger and they'll actually have no UI themselves. Their designers won't design UI or apps. Their designers will just design the way their product interacts with Intercom and other places like Facebook or Shopify or Twitter, whatever. So that's what we're doing. A lot of I spend a whole bunch of my time building our team, which is, uh, as I'm sure you you know from experience, extremely time consuming. Trying to hire people and grow everybody and so on. So that's it. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll make sure that we share all those URLs on the episode page. Thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your time and your experiences and your insights with us today. It's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes. 